Hey, my name is Kevin Martin. I'm the co-founder of Unspun, and I beat the Austin Path by building custom jeans with robots. Welcome back to the Beat the Austin Path podcast, the show that shows you that you can make an impact and benefit yourself personally in the process. Joining me today is Kevin Martin, the CTO and co-founder of Unspun, a company making bespoke 3D printed jeans. Using scanning and robotics technology, Unspun creates personalized jeans just for you, and it's way, way, way faster than the traditionally wasteful and costly pipeline of today's fashion. Unspun has raised over $10 million in funding so far, and Kevin himself has been named to Forbes 30 Under 30. The company was listed on Time's Best Inventions and Fast Company's World Changing Ideas. Unspun is a truly brilliant approach to bringing robotics and tech to one of the most harmful, wasteful, and archaic industries on the planet, clothing. So here's Kevin Martin, CTO and co-founder of Unspun. Custom jeans with robots, something that all of us have aspired to create in our life. I know I have created a number of technologies along these lines, but you beat me to it, dang it. Uh, How did you get involved in this seemingly wacky random idea? Yeah. Um, you know, depending on who counts apparel is like top three, top five dirtiest industries in the world. Um, and a big part of that is just because it's so massively labor intensive, uh, it just takes a lot of time to make a pair of jeans. Um, when you buy jeans with like rips and tears on it, it's, it's typically not robots that did that. It's, it's, you know, it's just someone with, uh, inflatable legs and a piece of sandpaper. Um, and so I was, I was thinking with my co-founders about where our biggest impact in, in the world could be. Um, we all really felt like climate was probably one of the biggest challenges of our generation. And uh, apparel is this really fascinating opportunity because of these really dirty, big industries, it's by far the one that's the least efficient. Um, it takes a big brand nine months to make a t-shirt because they have to plan things so far out and try to get labor costs down. Um, and so it's just this big guessing game of what might sell nine months from now um and so like august september 2019 all these brands saying like 2020 is going to be a big year for retail making huge orders huge amounts of of carbon and energy into these and then COVID hits and no one buys things and all of this product goes to waste so we were really thinking about uh how do we make a a old archaic process way more efficient um and and a really fundamental cornerstone of that is can you use technology to automate a massive chunk of the manufacturing so that you can make things really, really fast. Well, that makes sense. So I'm curious when you get ideas like this, what was the catalyst? Was it a documentary, an article? How did you begin to become aware that this was an issue? Totally. My co-founder, Beth, was the original visionary of the the Unspun mission. She was working in the outdoor industry. And (laughs) I I was going to say she was inspired, but maybe the right phrase is, is she was appalled at how she would sit in meetings where, you know, the general tone of it was, opt outside, save the environment, leave no trace. Uh, And then in the same meeting, say things like, oh, well, we have 400 something extra tents in this Arizona store, but um, we need to burn them because if we donate them and homeless people sleep in them, it makes our brand look bad. So we have to like disintegrate these. And she was like, really? Like the same meeting that that we were talking about our, our new sustainability campaign, we're saying, God forbid, there's homeless people sleeping in our excess tents. So she was really trying to think about like, okay, I, I, though I'm offended as a human, I understand that that business and capitalism is, is the driving force in our world. And we have to find an answer 
that that can satisfy that that angle as well. So she was really thinking about like, could we, you know, the 3D printing was kind of exploding. Like, could we make clothes as fast as 3D printing? What would it take to just like hit go and have something come out quick? So she was really thinking about this this opportunity of fundamentally automation in apparel manufacturing. And Walden, my other co-founder, teamed up with her shortly thereafter after they met at at Stanford and then. Uh, as any good millennial, I, I met them on the internet. So um, my background was robotics prior to this and, and worked in robotic camera motion. And cool. I, I loved working with, with robots, um, yeah. but I was really struggling with, you know, like I wake up every day and I film K-pop with robots and <laughs> I just don't feel like I'm making the world a better place. Um, yeah. Not to rag on K-pop if you're a huge K-pop fan, but, but I was, oh, yeah, I, I was really like... I mean, who isn't? I... I Exactly, exactly. Um, but I was like, I have so much opportunity in, in my life, and I'm so privileged to be in the position that I am. And and I need to spend my energy working on something that the, the planet needs. Um, because if I, if I won't do it with all the privilege that I have, then how can I expect anyone else to? So I was really looking for a meaty, a meaty challenge in, in the robotics adjacent world. Um, and Matt Bethenwald and talking about this this new vision for apparel. Um, and, I, and I just got sucked in. And so that was... Gosh, about five years ago, and uh, now we're we're off and running, and, and starting to see that like first big inflection point in it. That's brilliant, but I love the idea that sitting in a board meeting and just hearing very Mister Burns esque comments <laughs> escape your mouth, like say, "Wait a minute, am I the evil one here? <laughs> like, how can we get no, more preteens hooked on vape juice?" Is this sort of like, can we just rewind that sentence real quick? Let, let's just exactly. take a step back and realize what we're discussing. I'm I'm very glad that she had that moment instead of just glossing over it and then saying, oh, you know what? Forget it. Boys will be boys. Business people will be business people, that kind of thing. So she said, hey, maybe I've got a problem. And it's, it's interesting that the both of you came at this realization because that is sort of the premise of the show in general is the realization of if you're smart, if you have privilege, all the things you said, where do you want to be spending your time? And is money the only objective? Is that it? Or is there something else that makes a life well lived? And that's the fundamental question that we're trying to answer on this show. What does success mean? And is success just mm. Lamborghinis and private jets and all of that? Or is success something else? And what on your deathbed are you going to be proud of? I mean, these are the central themes that we tackle on this show. Totally. So it's exciting. Very cool. I mean, you, you mentioned Mr. Burns, and, and this becomes a, is actually a very fundamental part of our of our strategy. And we even talk about it internally. It's like the Mr. Burns test. Like whether you like it or not, Mr. Burns is who drives a massive part of this world. Um, yeah. for, for those that don't know the reference, uh, I, I believe it's from The Simpsons. Like, picture the most like you know just capitalist finance focused. I don't care about anything else in profits type persona. Um, and, and ultimately, that, that is still where a lot of decisions need to go through. So we think about our mission towards climate and sustainability and inclusivity and all of these things through the Mr. Burns test. If it's not faster, better, cheaper, and makes someone make more money, it's not going to work. Um, and so we, we've really kind of rooted the unspun strategy in this idea of, of doing good while doing well. Like, it, it needs to be profitable. It needs to be faster, better, cheaper. It needs to just satisfy all that Mr. Burns cares about, and it needs to be better for the environment. Um, and I think that's become a really, really important factor in, in our success up until now. That that makes sense. And I'm going to gatekeep my audience here and say, if anybody doesn't know who Mr. Burns is, they're not welcome to be a part of this show. That They're, they're forbidden. 
They're forbidden from watching this or future episodes. I'm going to, uh, you're X'd out. That's the There's end of it. your homework. It's very There's important because if you don't know The Simpsons, you won't understand anything. No, uh, uh, But it's interesting that you use the Mr. Burns as a positive test because when you first said that, I thought it's like a negative sense. Like if would Mr. Burns approve of this, then we don't do it. But you're actually flipping it and saying, no, we recognize that for better or for worse, that is the climate of business as it exists. And we have to operate within those parameters. So we have to do good while we do well. And I think that's sort of the mantra of the B Corp, which you guys became. And, and I'm very fascinated with the concept of the B Corp in general versus a traditional corporation. So maybe you can shed some light on what that difference is and why you elected to become a B Corp. Totally. Um, a, a new movement. Um, there's also kind of two variations of it. There's a, a legal structure of a B Corp um, as opposed to a Delaware C Corp or I guess any state C Corp. Um, and then there's also a, a certification called called Benefit Corporation or, or B Corp. Um, and, and really, it's a pledge to and a stake in the ground saying, as an entity, as a business, as a Mr. Burns for-profit business, um, we exist, yes, to to maximize profits, but also to maximize a global, like, human net benefit. Um, meaning that we think about, you know, uh, yes, profit is important, but we also have a, an obligation and a duty to our shareholders that we're thinking about uh, workers' rights elsewhere in the world. We're thinking about our, you know, play in automation and, and how that affects a changing world. We're thinking about climate. So it, it basically is a, a commitment to not only be optimizing for profit, but also the planet. Um, and it's gaining momentum. And it, it's becoming really cool to see, you know, at the beginning of, of B Corp, I think it's been around, oh gosh, I wouldn't know, maybe 10-ish years, maybe slightly more. Um, it was very fringe. And now suddenly it's it's becoming cool. Um, and it's a, it's a really difficult process to do. It takes hundreds of hours. There's all sorts of transparency. You have to kind of go through this every year. Um, but it, it's becoming something people recognize. And consumers say, hey, no, I, I want to buy from this company. I want to give this Mr. Burns uh, my money because I, I agree and, and want to be thinking about more than just um, you know this product, but what's behind it and what are the side effects and outcomes of that. Yeah, and that makes sense because we've seen the limitation. We've seen what happens in the traditional corporate model of the stock market companies, publicly traded companies, when growth is the only thing that matters, then it doesn't matter how you get there. All that matters is that you sell more units. It doesn't matter if you're polluting the planet. None of the rest of the stuff matters. And that's where we find ourselves in that predicament that I think many of us find so frustrating because we see it's, you know, your growth over here is just garbage pollution over there. So when your only objective and the only force that's holding you accountable is profits at all costs, then it's almost per definition that you will not care about this other stuff. Would you argue that it is per definition that you, you won't care? How likely is it that a non-B Corp will instill those values realistically? I mean, you, you, you certainly still can. Um, and, I, and I think of it kind of as like a, a spectrum. Like there's the, the purely I don't care at all about the planet environment. I just care about profits angle. Um, to the other side, there's the like, I want to be, you know, uh, a, a perfect influence. A, a, I want to do everything perfect. I want to recycle everything. I want to minimize my carbon footprint. I, I don't want to travel. Um, but then I think in, in that angle, if your goal is global impact, you also miss out. Because if you're, I don't know, if you're this tiny rowboat doing everything perfectly, like you're not going to move the world forward um, because you, you can't carry much. If you're that big cruise ship doing everything wrong, um, you know, bending that one degree 
has a net bigger impact than being a tiny little boat doing everything right. You know? So mm-hmm. to me, the, the, the beauty behind the, the, the B Corp movement is that it's, it's fundamentally thinking about both. It's saying everything perfect and being a tiny company with zero impact or, or zero scale doesn't do the world any good. And being a massive company and doing everything wrong doesn't do anything good. Like we need to be thinking about the middle part. Um, and I think that's really important because I, you know, if you start particularly from climate, if you start walking backwards through footprints and thinking about causes effects, like you can end up at, Oh, the, the best thing I can do for the world is to not exist. I should not travel. I should not move yeah, around. I should right. not consume thing. I, I should just, you know, under cease to exist on this planet or, yeah. right. Um, <laughs> or get even more. And, grim. And so that, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and so that I, I, I don't believe that that's the answer. Um, and so I'm, I'm very much a believer in like, yes, we have big work to do. Yes, uh, technology is, is the great enabler and, and gives us so much leverage. And yes, it's going to take us creating more of a carbon footprint, environmental impact, all of those things to kind of go deep into the J curve and then come out with something that net is, is a positive benefit. Yeah. And you mentioned cruise ships and one degree, which is a nice segue into the other point, which is that one of the goals of Unspun is to reduce global CO2 emissions by 1%. So to what degree do you think that that's realistically possible? What percent of emissions is fashion or jeans responsible for in general? A a 1% reduction in global human carbon emissions is massive. This is not a five-year goal, um, not a 10-year goal. I think it's like roughly similar to the entire uh, emissions of the the country of Qatar. So this is a huge amount. Um, But it, it, it... Scale-wise, it requires thinking along the gigaton scale. Um, gigatons of carbon emission, billions of tons. Um, any Anything that, as a species, if we're set out, hey, we need to reduce carbon emissions, we need to be thinking at the gigaton scale. Otherwise, the, the shovel is too small to, or the bucket is too small to, like, counter the amount of holes coming into the boat kind of thing. So for us, it means to get to this global scale uh, or get to a scale that big, how how does every decision we make ladder up to that? Um, so, for example, Unspun, we, we make custom jeans, um, but we're also thinking about a, a grander platform technology that could be used by the whole industry. If Even if Unspun becomes the biggest brand in the world, and then we grow 10x beyond that, we still have less than 20% of the market. And we can't make that 1% impact by just improving 20% of the fashion industry. So, Inherently, we need to be, be partnering. We need to be a platform. So we, we really use this 1% mission as kind of like our first lens of like, how, how should we approach this problem? Um, and and a, an important kind of balance as we think about like, what gets us closer to 1%? And also, what can we get signed by Mr. Burns at the same time? That makes perfect sense. And we chatted before we began filming, but I was first clued into how wasteful the fashion industry is, specifically jeans, a few years ago by a fellow marketer of, of mine. And he was explaining how much usable water goes into every pair of jeans, how much dye, just how enormously wasteful the process is for one pair of jeans to come to market, which was shocking to me. I had no idea. And then there are, of course, movies like uh, The True Cost, I believe it's called, documentaries that ex- expose yep. fast fashion. Some documentaries are out there that expose what's happening in fast fashion and how it's being made. Like you said, it's not robotics. It's made by children's hands in, in other countries. So knowing that it's incredibly wasteful and then having this twist of let's 3D print <laughs> clothes, 
Which is also itself kind of funny because I love how like in Hollywood movies are just a twist on a thing. Like, what if we make Die Hard but with TikTok influencers? They're like sold. You know, like what if we what if we three D print pants and then it's sold? You know, it's just a twist on a concept. But um, to what degree does doing that reduce waste? Let's start there. Yeah. So. Th- th- as you mentioned, the, the, the energy and carbon and effort uh, that goes into making clothes is massive. People talk about like, you know, we all, we all have a responsibility to, to, you know, treat the planet better. We should take shorter showers. Um, and, and this is always a fascinating one to me because directionally I'm like, okay, sure. Like everyone, yes, we should, we should all be thinking about a mindset of, of how do I contribute? So I, I think directionally a, a concept like that's great. Um, but when you think about impact, it's like, okay, take a shorter shower or buy one less t-shirt. And that's the same as not showering for almost two years. Um, or, or like, you know, don't eat one cheeseburger. And that's the same as, as like months of water use. So, so really think about like, what, what is the leverage that we have? Um, yes, because obviously I, I, I agree with any sort of mentality. We should be thinking about what to use, but like, let's use the biggest tools, the biggest shovels that we can find. Um, and in fashion, yes, like, do these clothes use a lot of ingredients? Is this cotton really water consumption heavy? Um, but the, the biggest shovel is actually that the, as a whole, the industry is making about 15%, 15 to 20%, depending on the year, especially during a COVID year, uh, just too much stuff, just creating all this excess um, that doesn't get sold. And in a $1.4, $1.5 trillion industry, there's, there's literally hundreds of billions of dollars spent making something, moving it around the earth a couple times, getting it on that like Topeka, Kansas H&M shelf. It doesn't sell and then we burn it. So for us, the, the biggest way to convince Mr. Burns to be more sustainable is like, hey, you're burning billions of dollars a year in product Burnsing. that you overproduced. Uh, how would you like to not have to commit to these numbers nine months ahead of time and just produce when you need it? So, so really fundamentally at Unspun, um, we like the analogy of 3d printing because people are familiar with it, but we're not doing anything like we don't make plastic clothes. It's, it's still textiles. It's still yarn. Um, but the way that we build it is in this crazy machine with thousands of actuators on it. And we have all of these yarns coming in and, and essentially like seamless clothes coming out and we can make a pair of pants in about nine minutes. Um, and we can build these like fully automated factories and place them outside New York and outside LA and, and in the East Bay of, of San Francisco and in Paris and things like that, where then rather than, Hey, uh, whatever the stranger things is really popular. And now everyone wants these like stranger things themed clothing, but it's going to take us nine months to get to it. it. It can be like, Hey, we just start manufacturing right in the Amazon distribution center type thing. So really thinking about make the process faster so that you can make things just in time rather than, way, way ahead of time and and guess wrong on how much you need. Well, I'm not sure when you did this, but at a certain point you posted a video that was a teaser because you call this technology Vega, right? Uh, The Vega 3D technology. And you posted a teaser of pants being as a 3D model of pants being built, sort of 3D printed. Very cool. Reminded me of The Incredibles or something like Tony Stark. And when they say that, I was like, man, I really want a pair of pants now. I want a pair of future pants. (laughs) Yeah. It just looks super cool. Uh, so what is the process? What, what, what is the robot doing? I mean, obviously not giving anything you can't give away away. Yeah. So th- there's, there's kind of two, two angles of, of unspun in, in our core technology. Um, fundamentally, we, we believe that the future of apparel should be on demand. And 
if we want to figure out the biggest bucket we have to take a chunk out of the climate side of apparel and also be more profitable, it's it's making stuff on demand and eliminating that unsold inventory. So the, the two areas of tech that we have that we need for that is one, robots. Um, we need to build really fast. We need to build in, you know, right by tier one cities. Um, but the second layer of that technology is, is like the plumbing layer. Um, if you go on, you know, pick big fashion brand and click buy on the website, a factory does not turn on. The buy button on that website in factories are eons apart. There's maybe one spreadsheet that goes between those worlds that happens once a quarter. There's probably typos in it. Um, there's there's no like plumbing between there. So in this new world where, you know, Ross goes on and Ross is like, wow, I, I really want future pants um, and clicks buy. At that point, we need to be, you know, this is what Ross bought. This is Ross's measurements. Let's automatically optimize these pants to fit Ross. And then let's send it to the closest automated factory to Ross so that it can be built in the next three hours thrown on that whatever Amazon track and, and at your door by tonight. Um, so we we really think about what is necessary for this this more sustainable and more profitable future as robots and software. And robots have been kind of the longer, uh, deeper R&D project. Um, so while we built that, we said, okay, let's, let's make the software work. Let's commercialize the software part and prove that we can take an order optimize it, send it to a factory and, and get it to them. So today, if you go on Unspun's website, you can buy custom fit jeans. We have no sizes. Um, we actually don't even have genders to our products. You just choose a more masculine or feminine fit. And, and we build you jeans that actually fit your legs. Like if you're a fencer and your right thigh and left butt cheek are bigger because that's the stance that you take, <laughs> like we can fit that. Yeah. If, if you're an amputee and you only have one leg and uh, you want to make sure that it fits the other part well, you can build that. Sure. If you're a biker with like massive calves, um, and a tiny waist, uh, we, we can make jeans for that. So the, the Unspun as it exists today is all about custom fit and, and conventionally manufactured jeans. And starting around mid next year, we'll release our first products produced on Vega, as you mentioned, which is our, our robotic 3D weaving process. Um, cool. Like I said, it's, it's got like thousands of yarns coming into it and almost kind of spider webby like um, we pull these seamless clothes out of it um, in a way that really makes the process so much faster by skipping steps. Um, the old way of clothes is like yarns to fabric, flat fabric, it's cookie cutter pieces cut out and then stitched together. Then you have a 3D thing. Um, we're just going yarns directly to 3D. And so uh, I, I think it's an Elon quote, like the fastest way to do something is to not do it. Uh, the fastest way to improve this process is to just skip steps, like get rid of those baton handoffs. That's where you always drop it. Um, do as much as you can in, in one chunk uh, in a way that then just shrinks the entire process, both physically and, and timeline-wise. Well, it sounds brilliant. It sounds like an incredible solution. One of the things that I'm curious about, because those of us who don't know much about fashion, I'll demonstrate my own ignorance about the entire industry here, but I have this perception, because you said it takes nine months for a t-shirt to get made in traditional channels. So I have this perception that at Paris Fashion Week or at these events, somebody just dictates from on high. They say, hey, this year it's all about salmon colored polka dots and sweaters. And then that sort of trickles down to the industry. And then suddenly you find that in the H&M uh, catalog nine months later. And then because even I notice looking at stores that there are trends that you see that, oh, this season is all about these colors or this shade. You sort of see it reflected in multiple brands all around you. And then, of course, next season, something totally different. And that's how you know that last season's products are out of date and, and not cool anymore. So with there being such an, an incredible lag time, 
and with it being such an arbitrary decision as to what is actually popular or what the next trend is, since, again, it originated over a year ago. It's not today. Somebody had that idea over a year ago that you're wearing today. Um, what would be the reason that 2020 sales are lackluster and they have to throw it all away when we as ignorant consumers don't even know why, why is that gone bad when we never knew what the trend was to begin with? Yeah. And, and so this is a really big, you know, if you think about investing, if you think about starting companies, like look for the tides changing and look for the tides changing fast. And that's where a lot of opportunity hides. This is a massive one, like 10, 20 years ago, um, Pre, especially pre-internet, there trends and culture spread slower. It was, you know, maybe just very localized, like physical things. And so, the way fashion was dictated was big companies saying, like, you know what, we're going to make this year a big sweater with the letters G A P across it and kind of a curve right. and stripes, and that's what everyone's going to wear. Um, right. Because there there was no two-way street, and that's how a lot of the industry existed for a long time. But now you know, Stranger Things comes out every week and that thing just went viral on TikTok. And now everyone wants a t-shirt with that thing printed on it. So now suddenly the industry for the first time is up against, we no longer are in the driver's seat of what's cool. Social media and, and culture is. And now we built a system that was reliant on us getting to decide what was cool and allowing for a nine month process to get there to, holy shit, that just went viral yesterday. And everyone's talking about whatever. And now it's a race to how quickly can we get that out? Um, and, and that is the future of fashion. It, it's completely going to be reactionary from culture backwards rather than big companies down. And that is why the old process doesn't work anymore. Because if you can be the first one to get tens of millions of t-shirts out with whatever, what was it, Left Shark or any of the, the funny trends of the last few years, like that is what people want to wear. And it's really fast because just as quick as, as that meme popped up on the internet, exploded, everyone did a little dance and then it was gone. Same thing. So that is what everyone's chasing is, is how do we react so fast to that? Um, mm. And it's still a slow process. The industry hasn't gotten their full. It's why there's all sorts of companies working on this. Um, but yeah, a, a big, big push in, in can we react to culture and be a part of culture than try to drive culture. Um, but also just a, an amount of like, overproduction in, in general. Um, you know, you mentioned like in, in the beginning of COVID, like it wasn't necessarily that people were like, oh, you know, blue shirts with polka dots are not cool anymore. Um, it was more just people were like, I don't want to buy this stuff. Uh, I, I don't want to buy anything right now. I'm not leaving my house yeah, or um, yeah. ex exactly. So, so the then there's just too much stuff. Six months in a row. Yeah, that was me. Exactly, uh, exactly. Um, and, and then, you know, then culture changed and other things and, and what people want is, is something different. So, so yeah, there, there's kind of a, a chasing culture bit. And then there's just a like, uh, you know, we just make way, way, way too much stuff bit that starts to pile up as well. Well, one of, one of the insights that I think you have that is a trend that I've noticed amongst people who are doing this thing well, the doing good and doing well thing, which is, again, that intersection that I'm personally very fascinated by right now, is... It's all about how you position yourself. Like I, we, I talked to you about uh, Jay Giroud, the founder of Damon Motorcycles, who makes this incredibly sexy electronic motorcycle. And that gets a lot of hype because mm. at the end of the day, it's a, it's a tech gadget. Underneath that, he's trying to rid the world of fossil fuels. And he's very passionate about the environment. But you wouldn't necessarily know that. Just like how Tesla owners aren't necessarily thinking about the environment versus the cachet of owning a Tesla. That's something that Elon did, I think, well to his credit. One thing that it totally. seems like you have done well 
is the way that you seem to be positioning this brand, it, it feels fashionable, it feels hip to me, and it feels like you are riding on that TikTokification of fashion in general. It doesn't feel like you're putting the mission first and foremost, although it is ever present. It's sort of this other thing that is enticing for these other reasons. And I, I like that kind of surreptitious way of thinking of the Trojan horse way of thinking of we're going to get you over here for these reasons. Like you said, a meme on a shirt or whatever the in is. But underneath the surface, there's the change that we're trying to make. In my opinion, that's what seems to work the best. Um, how do you feel about striking that balance between mission forward and just something that looks cool? Because you don't even have to talk about it. You could say, hey, how would you like a pair of jeans in three hours? I don't even need to talk about the sustainability aspect. So like, how do you juggle the messaging there? Totally. And I, and I think that's, you know, very, very core to this, this general doing good while doing well, Mr. Burns test, like sustainability alone is not enough. People are not going to say, Ooh, that's kind of ugly, but I'll drive it. Uh, or I'll, I'll wear it because of that. Like maybe at the very beginning, like the early Prius buyers did, but at the end of the day, people want a sexy motorcycle. They want a cool looking car. Um, and yes, the, the sustainability element becomes this kind of like, reinforcer of that i i certainly hope that tomorrow morning everyone on the planet is going to wake up and jolt out of bed and go holy shit i should buy less stuff and it's not going to happen it didn't happen yesterday didn't happen today it's not going to happen tomorrow like consumers as humans we are inherently selfish want to buy stuff want to be cool want to be part of culture like that is not going to change and i and i think that any sort of business or gosh global climate strategy that relies on everyone suddenly being very different is not ever going to be plan A and can't be plan A. And so I, I think that the, the mission and as you know, more and more people become climate focused and, and think about how do we enact that in a way that like actually can, you know, make that like uh, cruise ship level scale than the tiny robot scale is, is you do have to have a sexy motorcycle. You do have to have a cool electric sports car. You do have to have cool jeans that, that are, are culturally relevant and all of those things need to be the most sustainable option um, and have the biggest net, net climate impact. So I, I, I think that unless or as soon as you stop making this needs to be the best product, period, uh, and, and making sure that that is what goes across Mr. Burns desk, everything after that, if, if, if you start compromising there, um, it's just a slow, you know, slow spin out to the bottom. So, yeah, for us, it's like that kind of becomes this why we're doing things and how we do things, but not what we make, if that makes sense. We still make the sexiest, coolest, uh, most, most in-style, best-fitting jeans. Um, but why we do it and how we do it comes from that climate mission. Yeah, that, that's so true and, and such a, a good point that, that I certainly didn't fully grasp because I'm not immersed in these things. I'm obviously not, uh, let's say, a Kardashian follower or people like them, but the amount of people who are selling fast makeup or, or you know, she in that, that very fast fashion brand that's super popular on TikTok – these things are huge, and I think people who aren't involved don't understand the numbers and scale that are involved in these things. Like, for example, it shocked me to learn that a, a beauty channel that I'd never even heard of before, a woman, I think her name is uh, Huda Katan, she made half a billion dollars, and probably more now, and obviously Kylie Jenner became you know, the youngest billionaire. Billions of dollars with doing nothing but opening up a Shopify account, selling third-party white-label makeup stuff, of course, which is not eco-friendly at all, just cheap plastic crap. And then you have this realization that 
There are so many people like this who have literally made more money in their life than all of the Beatles. <laughs> you, you know, the greatest musicians of all time, widely regarded. You know, Paul McCartney, $1.2 billion. And you say, as much as the Beatles have done for pop culture, there are a number of young people on TikTok who are earning more money than any of the Beatles. And that's just crazy to contemplate yeah. because you would say that it can't be true, but it is true. The, the scale of these things. And so to your, to the point I'm trying to make is that, yes, we're not going to change these cultural aspects. We're not going to change what people care about. We're not going to change the types of accounts that they follow, what they value as a society. That's never going to happen. So how do we work within that framework to get these things done in such a way that we're working within the system? And I think that is the question that people such as yourself are asking themselves every day. And that is the question that I personally am most interested in hearing the answer to. Totally. I mean, I, I, you're spot on of, of kind of the, the changing of the guard in terms of, you know, wh where, like, like you said, where does culture come from? Um, it, it's no longer those gap executives in 1970s deciding like what curly style, like clip arts font are we going to put on this? It's here's someone with a massive platform and they, you know, are, are reacting to internet trends and suddenly that's where everything goes. So where, you know, the, the, the light that culture is following is no longer these like big corporates. It's now creators, small creators and brands are realizing like, holy cow, we are not in control. It is that Instagram account with 200 million followers that suddenly got every Gen Z person in LA to wear chonky Crocs again. Um, and now Crocs are back in huge. Um, and we're, we can't fight that because we will lose every single time. So how do yeah. we how do we partner with that? How do we come up with these platforms that they can be the ones, you know, selling to their audience? Um, and, and yeah, I, I do think that we as the next generation have that responsibility of like, yes, we, we should build those tools. We should allow for culture to drive, uh, drive fashion in that way. But we should also be building those tools of like, hey, how can we do this in a, in a really sustainable way? How can we have, uh, you know, better practices and sourcing and, and transparency and whatnot? Um, and I do think that, that, you know, that the kids are all right. Like, Gen Z does care a lot about I that. Agree. If, you, yeah. if you post on on TikTok and you're making sustainability claims that are unfounded, like you will get shredded. Um, yeah. And that's awesome. Right. We need that. So it, we, do. we, we yeah. kind of just went over this wave one of like sustainability is cool and let's just like throw green paint over everything to enough groups have been, uh, you know, just just publicly canceled for for faking it. And, and now I think we're really going to get to this third wave of like, okay, like, Yes, the, the big Kylie Jenner brands that, that pop up in the next five years are going to have these like very fundamental climate, uh, you know, foundations to them, because ultimately that is that is what culture demands now, which is super cool to see. I completely agree. And I feel the very same way. It does feel like we're on the cusp of another thing, because yeah, in the past it was just, oh, I can I have a big following. I can monetize it. How? Who cares? Right. Shopify is just monetize your following. But I do think we're at the cusp where people are saying that that, that rings hollow and empty. And there is this next thing coming where it's, yes, we've learned the lessons. We know that a big following can equal monetization. But at the end of the day, people are asking questions like you're asking, do I really want to be doing robotics for K-pop when I could be doing something else, something more meaningful, perhaps? And if, if more and more people just ask that question, then we're making enormous progress, I think, culturally and as a society. So on a business sense, I want to shift gears because I noticed that there's a connection between CU Boulder. I'm originally from Colorado, but also Stanford. I recently read a book uh, from 
Ashley and uh, Hassan Kuda, I believe, called The Unfair Advantage. And they talk about a disproportionate number of unicorn startups coming from Stanford. What is it about Stanford? What is it about the Bay Area that encourages companies like yours? Do you feel that that was a key factor towards the success in getting to this point? Mm, I, I think that uh, I'll, I'll separate Stanford and the Bay Area. I, I think there's a slight, sure. a slight difference. Um, and, I'll, and I'll include, I, I went to the University of Colorado, um, but I'm, I'm totally including myself in this. I, yeah. Yes, Stanford is, is obviously an incredible school and having a reputation attracts incredible, inspiring professors and those inspiring professors attract ambitious, intelligent people. So there's certainly something about Stanford and the program that you know is, is creating this. Um, However, I, I genuinely believe that a massive chunk of it is not that, you know, the University of Colorado or that Stanford, like, impart wisdom that you can't find on the internet. It's the people that have the opportunity and the privilege to go to those schools that did good on their tests. Why? Because they spent a bunch of money, their parents spent a bunch of money on ACT prep. And they, you know, there's so much privilege to even walk in that door and things that needed to help you and like all these safety nets beneath you that I had um, that to, you know, to graduate and say like, Oh, I, I want to think about starting a business um, and not like, Holy cow, my mom still works minimum wage and has basically shackled herself to debt for life to get me in college, to be the first person in my family to go to college. Like there's a massive amount of privilege to say, I have the opportunity to start something and to do whatever I want. And I know that if I fail, I don't have to worry about, where my next meal comes from, or is there a couch that I can sleep on, or you know, will my family support me? Um, so, so yes, I you know, the University of Colorado and Stanford are incredible schools, and they have an incredible program and, and teach you a lot of things about you know starting companies and and what that early struggle is like. Um, but I, I think anyone's kidding themselves if they don't say a massive part of why a lot of these successful companies come from there is is because it, it honestly just meant that people had the ability to to take these huge risks. Um, and not every unicorn company is, is like that. There's some incredible stories. Um, the founder of, of Calendly, if, if you haven't read his story, is an incredible yeah. one to read. Um, okay. and, cool. and so, yes, you know, uh, entrepreneurial folks and people who, who have this like hellbent desire to build something do come from, from everywhere. But uh, statistically, there's a, a massive portion of them where a greater the greatest factor in, in success was not, um, you know, intelligence or... Uh, working harder, though, obviously, those are incredibly important. A, a huge, huge part of it is like, are you just in a place where you have a safety net beneath you where, where you're willing and, and able to like take a big risk and, and make that jump? Um, and, and I think that being realistic with that is is important. And uh, starting a company is hard. You, you know, you have no insurance at first, like, there's so many layers to it that become really, really difficult, where if you have any of these other life weights of like, I really need to get my mom out of a, you know, tiny apartment, or I, I need to, you know, help support my, my siblings because, uh, you know, a parent died. Like there's so many other layers that, that have to be there. And, and that kind of goes back to why I was like, I cannot spend my life filming K-pop. I, I need to, <laughs> you know, I, if you lined up all the humans that have ever existed in terms of like how much privilege and opportunity and like when they were right. born, all of us are incredibly lucky to be alive now, like reading yeah. stories of like the, you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago, like Jesus Christ, like so hard. Um, so we're also lucky to be alive now and to be able to think and even have the luxury of like, I'm going to risk like two years of income 
to maybe start something that might have an impact. Um, you know, if, if, if that person won't do it, then I can't, I can't blame anyone else for, for not trying. That's my motivation. Exactly. If I don't do it, then who will, if I don't care, then who will. Um, but of course, at the end of the day, when you are, we're sort of up against this, this thing where we're trying to make something that's already well known for being almost impossible and making it even harder in a way, <laughs> because nobody ever said that entrepreneurship was easy. Everybody said it was hard. Everybody says uh, the general advice for trying to create a unicorn startup is don't do it. That's the typical <laughs> advice that you're is that don't even try normally, right? Entrepreneurship just as it is, is hard as hell slash borderline impossible. And then you say, oh, that's not hard enough. I need to do it in an eco-friendly way. <laughs> I need to do it where I'm actually changing it a little bit as I'm building it. And then you're just adding another layer on top of that. So it, it is not for the faint of heart, I don't think. I think it's it takes a very special kind of person to to do that. But at the end of the day, it is a very logical progression from the kind of perspective that you're approaching it. It does make sense. You say, okay, I, I'm, I'm here. I want to build something. What do I want to build? I want to build something that works, but I also want to do good. So you can trace the steps back and it makes sense, but that does not mean that it is an easy journey by any means. Totally. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think that the, the tides are changing in, uh, you know, I, from purely a, a capitalist standpoint, I think that having a strong sustainability angle now does give you a leg up. So even if you stripped away the like personal human responsibility, I think that more and more, you know, someone set out to think about what is the next unicorn and, and how, how can I build that um, probably is considering the, the climate and sustainability angle because culturally that's, that's the, that's the new wave coming in. So mm. that's exciting to see the more that, uh, the, the more that Mr. Burns starts thinking that's climate and sustainability is good for profits, that is a great sign. Um, and, and there's yeah, certainly, you know, there's a cultural drive there. Um, there's probably a political one. I'm, I'm not smart enough to, to, to really help drive progress there. But, you know, we, we probably need a carbon tax at some point. Um, and, and we probably shouldn't allow companies to just like destroy tons and tons of inventory. So th th there's other forces coming at it, but to, to see a, a capitalist profit-driven system start optimizing for climate and sustainability purely for selfish reasons is incredible news. And, and that's one of the big things that, that gets me up in the morning every day too. That's super cool. Well, we, we talked about the Bay Area being separate. So what is it about the Bay Area then? Because of course, there's that famous statement that the next Facebook is going to come from one mile from here, Silicon Valley, all of that. What do you think about the geographic location? Yeah, definitely quite quite a journey. Um, but I, I think like anything, it's it's ultimately telling stories. People, uh, when people are thinking about building something, and you hear, there's a promised land. There's this is where people go. Like it, it inherently attracts like-minded folks. Um, and so I, I think a big part of like where the the Silicon Valley story came from was was yes, like probably at the beginning, you know, some some basic ingredients of be it capital, be it talent, be it bigger companies that had just IPO'd and now there are suddenly people with money, but something seeded it. And then it became this kind of self-fulfilling thing of like, I I want to do this and I know there's other people like me and I feel like I'm a minority, so I'm going to go find them. And, and that's not new, right? Like the founding of the United States, very similar kind of thing. So I think at the beginning, it was very much like, there are people like me and I want to go be surrounded by them. And I think for a long time to, to have a shot at, at a successful massive company, you really, really needed to be in the Bay Area. Because as that snowballed and as that grew, the talent went there, the money went there. Um, 
you know, everything was really centralized on these like in-person relationships. Um, I think COVID changed that dramatically. And I, yes, I, I still think that Silicon Valley and San Francisco are, are going to be an important hub of the tech world of the future, but it, it's not exclusive anymore. Um, Twitter can be just as much of being in the scene uh, as, as it was being in, in Palo Alto, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So I, I think now we're kind of seeing that it shift a bit and, and move from, you know, physical Silicon Valley to, to digital online Silicon Valley. Um, but it doesn't mean it's going away. I think it's just evolving. Um, mm. You know, talking about COVID, everyone who did not want to be in San Francisco and Silicon Valley left. The, the Google engineers making a ton of money and working 26 hours a week. Um, they're like, why would I do this when I can go live in Colorado and ski? Um, and so, yes, like a lot of people have left the Bay Area. Uh, but but what's been really cool, at least for for me, is that the the folks that stayed were the ones that like no I I need to be here. Be that from a mentality, be that they also had semi truck sized robots in their lab that you know you can't just pack <laughs> into your carry on and fly to Miami. Um, you know the the people that stayed in San Francisco were the ones that were like this is this is home. This is where I am. Um, so there's a lot more climate tech. There's a lot more hardware. There's a lot more biotech. Um, and, and I think it's just kind of shifted now. And, and I think in many ways, if you're working in crypto or, or B2B software or any sort of purely digital product, um, there really is no reason to be NSF. Um, but if you're working in, in robotics or um, anything energy or, or anything physical like that, uh, San Francisco is actually getting more and more attractive because mm. it's becoming higher concentrated there. And, you know, to be like, oh, wow, we really need to hire an expert in this like fringe type of, I don't know, plasma engineering. And then you look at LinkedIn and you're like, wow, I can find 20 people that do this in the U S and 17 of them are within four miles of me. Um, that's, that, that becomes one of these really kind of compounding reasons. So, so yeah, I think that for, for atoms, um, you know, thinking about the bits and atoms feature of, of Silicon Valley, that the atom side, I think will continue to grow in the Bay area, um, e- even more rapidly where I think the the bit side has now become very digital and, there's just as much opportunity for you in being plugged in and engaging in the Twitter sphere of startup world uh, as there was like, you know, walking around in, in South Park and that neighborhood in San Francisco five, 10 years ago. So we're wrapping up the end of our hour now. How long ago was it that you made the decision to leave K-pop robotics now? I really started thinking about that um, 20, I guess 2016. Um Started a, a company with a, a best friend. We, we were working on, they weren't even called drones at the time, but long range drones in 2009, 2008, 9, 10, right around there. Um, you know, back when t- every hour of flying meant you spent 10 hours like tuning PID variables and like mechanically balancing propellers. Um, so I, I think it was right place, right time in the early 2010s to see something that I was really passionate about at the time, which was just like remote control airplanes to suddenly flourish into an industry. People were like, wow, we can put a camera on this and that's cheaper than filming with these big helicopters. Um, so I, I saw, that was like the first big wave that I got to be in. You know, I, by, by certainly no means was it like me intentionally scheming as I was like, ooh, this is going to come. Like I, I just happened to, to be there. Um, but I think getting to witness that and see drones suddenly explode Everyone wants drone footage. Um, you then ask the insurance company if they'll insure your drone flying over a crowd of people at a concert. And they say, absolutely not. Like, <laughs> this is a 30-pound weight held in the air by plastic razor blades spinning at Mach 0.8. Like, 
no, you can't fly that over people. So, so for us, it was like, wow, everyone wants this, but there's a, a constraint here. Like, what if we made cable cameras? Um, so we started working on these, like, you know, camera, think about a rope and then this like thing that drives it back sure. and forth on it and a camera gimbal underneath. Um, and it was a blast at the time. Like all we really wanted to do was, you know, uh, I, you know I, I was working on it while I was in undergrad too. So my, my co-founder and I would like go to class Monday through Thursday, only stay for half of our final on Thursday and then race to the airport, fly to Taipei, set up and film this big concert Friday, Saturday, pack up Saturday night, fly back and land at like two or 3 a.m. Monday morning and then be in class at 8 a.m. And all, all we wanted to do was just like, Whoa. you know, fly around, film Red Bull events and and have fun like that. Um, and it was certainly a blast. But after a while, you're like, OK, like this is not making the world better. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I actually keep the voicemail on my phone where I, I came out of something and like saw the little like whatever Apple voicemail transcription. I was like, hey, Kevin, I heard you're the best in the world at, at filming K-pop robots. Like we have this concert coming up in Korea. Like, can we, can we get you there? And I was just like, me, that, that one at the front of the line of the privilege list, like that's what this person is dedicating their life to. So, so yeah, that was really kind of my like, okay, I, I need to be thinking about what are the like least common denominators of the future and, and how do I support that? So concrete was a really fascinating one. Like there's a ton of concrete in the world. Um, China is about to create an entire United States worth of new middle-class humans um, in the next 10 years. And the world currently cannot produce enough like cotton, concrete, and steel to support that. So like there's massive requirements for, for innovation there. So that was fascinating. Obviously energy is, is a, a base unit of a, of a healthy future for humans. Um, and, and textiles was a really fascinating one. Carbon fiber composites weaving generally was the, that got my, engineer brain spinning when I met Beth and Walden. Um, and I, you know, I, I think a lot of tech kind of starts out in this, like, here's a cool technology like blockchain that's trying to like force feed back into a problem. Um, I'll probably get hate for being a, a crypto hater on that, but you know, like, this felt like a flip side of you. like, wow, there's a yeah. clear technology. There's, there's pull for this rather than push. Um, if you can automate things, it becomes a, a massively different world. So yeah, I, I was really excited by just the raw automation opportunity. I was excited by the that like Mr. Burns profitability, sustainability overlap, um, and just the magnitude of the problem. Uh, if, if you ever get to come and, and see our robots, this is a massively complex machine. Um, I would love and, to. That sounds yeah, that, awesome. It felt like a fun thing to see, sink my teeth into. So certainly hard. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> there's a favorite quote that I have, um, you know, like, like physically and, and according to the laws of physics, a bumblebee shouldn't be able to fly, but no one's told it that. So it goes about oh. flying anyway. It's <laughs> <All> like, right. <laughs> had you shown me how hard Unspun was going to be at that time where we jumped in, I, I think it could have scared me away, but, but ignorance is a strength. And I think once you like jump into the pool and you're like, Oh, this isn't that bad. I can, I can keep swimming a bit. Um, you know, then it's easy to keep going, but it's that first like jump that, that becomes a really, really hard one that you need, all sorts of things to, to line up just perfectly for. Well, that's fantastic. Well, uh, on behalf of the listeners and people like myself, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you made the transition. So kudos, congratulations. It's been awesome having you on the show. We've reached the end of the time. So if there's one thing you want to promote or if you want to direct people to a certain place or another, now's the time. You can close us out here. Super cool. Well, we're, we're always looking for, for beta testers. So if anyone's interested in, in trying the product out and, and giving us some feedback, um, we'll send you a $40 gift card to use on, on your first order of jeans. So it comes out to like 
160 bucks for a perfect pair of jeans. We'll, we'll custom fit into you. And if you don't like them, we'll, we'll take them back. So I can send you the link and you can, I don't know, maybe post it somewhere on there and, and folks can sign That's up there. there. So we'll put it on the screen. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure. And with that, uh, the official podcast recording is over. 